Some of you will remember the name Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey was a radio broadcaster. He was an analyst, a columnist, I believe, with ABC News Radio. For more than 50 years, Paul Harvey brought his stories to millions of listeners. You probably remember his trademark line would usually come at the end of an interesting story that he, would told, that he had told, and he would close out his segments by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. We come this morning back to our study through the book of First Peter, a study that has thus far been theologically rich. It's been, at least for me and I hope for you, absolutely thrilling as we've come face to face with with the glorious truths, the spiritual realities of the first chapter and a half now of the book of First Peter. And as we come to now the middle of chapter 2, our text this morning, there's a subtle shift in Peter's focus. The first 35 verses or so of the letter have been this abundant supply of rich theological truth. It it really serves as the foundation for the rest of, of the book, the, the rest of the story. From verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter begins to focus on what we might refer to the, the practical section of the letter. He's dealing with the practical matters now here in the book of 1 Peter. He begins what we might call the application section of the book. And what you're going to see now as we move on into 1 Peter in the coming weeks and, and most likely months and maybe longer, there, there are a list of exhortations that, that Peter gives. There are a bunch of exhortations coming in the rest of the story, a bunch of exhortations coming in the remaining part of, of this letter. And he's really playing out what we concluded with last week. Last week, I hope that you'll remember that we discovered that those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have been sovereignly called out by God for the purpose of proclaiming, for the purpose of declaring, for the purpose of publicizing or publishing the excellencies of God. And and we said that, that God is is appointed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to be sort of like a billboard, a billboard, with, if you will, which, which publishes something about the superiority of our God, something that, a billboard that publishes something of the, the supremacy of our God in a world filled with lesser gods. You and I are billboards on which God declares His excellency in the midst of a dark world. And you might ask the question, how does that happen? How could it be that you and I might be used of God? I mean, here we are, we're just, I mean, look at us. There's nothing that greatly impressive about us. How could it be that you and I could could be used for such a sacred purpose as as to publish to declare the excellencies the supremacy of God how does that happen well that's the point of this practical section of the book of first peter that we're getting into that's the point of this application section from chapter 2 verse 11 
to the end of this letter, the end of chapter five, is all application. It's not just cliche, but what we're learning here is where the rubber meets the road, the application section. If I could summarize the rest of the book of uh, the rest of this letter, the rest of the book of 1 Peter, I would say that there are four ways by which you and I would publish, would publicize, would proclaim, would declare the excellencies of God. Four ways. One, he'll tell us we're going to do it through our sanctification. Two, we're going to do it through our submission. Three, we're going to do it through our suffering. Four, we're going to do it through our serving. That's the rest of the book. He's going to apply in those four areas the way that you and I would be used of God to be a billboard for God's excellency in this world that's filled with lesser gods. But this morning, we're just going to look at this first category, this first way in which you and I would proclaim the excellencies of God in a, in a world that's really hostile toward him, that, and that is our sanctification. What do I mean by our sanctification? I'm talking about our individual and corporate pursuit of holiness, practical, rubber meets the road, day by day, moment by moment, pursuit of holiness. We notice that in our text today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Let me read it for you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now let's pray and ask God to give us some understanding. Oh Father, we come to your word today. We believe this book to be your word, inspired, inerrant, infallible. And we come to your truth now and ask you to open our eyes and our ears, our minds, our heart. Bend our will to you today, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this text that I just read for you, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, there is one main focus in these, these verses. And I told you this before, we've seen this throughout, even in our study of 1 Peter, you can always discover the main thrust of the text, the main, the main action of the text by searching for and finding the main verb. And what's the main verb? It's communicated in the words, I urge. That's the main action of the text. It's a Greek word. You've heard it before. It's the Greek word, parakaleo. It means to call alongside. To call alongside. And what it's communicating here is, is a strong request, an urgent appeal. It's an exhortation. That's what we have here, an exhortation. Peter is like a, a football coach calling his players to the sideline, having a huddle up, and he's going to exhort them. He's going to appeal to them. He's going to urge them. 
Peter is coming alongside of his readers and he is urgently appealing to them, encouraging them or exhorting them. And everything in these verses was organized underneath that one main action. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to notice four features of this one exhortation. Four features of this one exhortation. And it's really simple. We're going to see, first of all, who. Who is being exhorted? That's very clear here. We'll see that in the very first couple of words. Who is being exhorted? Secondly, we're going to see what they're exhorted to. What he's calling them to, toward. What he's, what he's pressing on them. Third, we're going to see why. Why is he exhorting them? And then lastly, we're going to find out how they can obey this exhortation or how we can obey. So you see it very clearly, who, what, why, and how. So let's look at the first feature, who is being exhorted. And you'll see it right there at the beginning. I love how he starts this, beloved, beloved. This is a favorite way of Peter to refer to his readers. He does this uh, throughout his letter, you see it in chapter 4, you see it in Second Peter chapter 3, numerous times. We could say, we could probably just stay here today and just talk about this one word, beloved, as we consider all of its implications. But, but we're not going to do that. I just want you to think about it with me for a moment. It's a term that refers to one who is dear to another. So somebody comes up to you and says, beloved, uh, there's just a term of endearment. Dr. Zodiades pointed out that the word was spoken only of Christians as united with God or with each other in the bonds of holy love. Peter speaks with great affection. It, 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 the affection here is just dripping off the page. He is speaking with great affection toward his brothers and sisters who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. And listen, as you read the New Testament, you find that this is often the way that Christians spoke of one another. Christians often called one another beloved. Beloved. That's amazing to me. They spoke of one another in terms of such tender affection that they called one another, each other, loved ones. Loved ones. That's how we're to think of one another. I mean, imagine thinking of brothers and sisters who are sitting here this morning looking at them as they go out, greeting them as they go out, and just saying, beloved, loved one. But look, look, this isn't just some mushy, feel-good idea. It's deeply rooted in something other than emotion. In other words, you might say, you know, Joe, that's kind of foreign to me. How do I get that kind of affection, that kind of tenderness with which I think of and address other brothers or sisters in Christ. Christ, what will stir that kind of affection? Well, let me help you with that. This same word is used to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when God said from heaven, this is my what? Beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The one who is loved by God. And now listen, you and I, beloved you and I, loved ones, are beloved in the sense that we have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and have been so united to Christ that God loves us, listen, to the degree that 
He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves us as much as he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? I'm almost jumping out of my skin this morning thinking of the fact that God loves us as much as he loves his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul hints at this when he uses a slightly different word in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. And then he says this, in the beloved. That word translated beloved is slightly different, but, but it gives us a good understanding of what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. In other words, if you want to get to the point of being moved with such tender affection for one another that you can refer to one another as a beloved, as a loved one, you've got to begin to see each other as being in Christ. That's stunning. You and I need to start to look at each other as being in Christ. That's amazing. What would change if we began to look at each other like that? How would we think about? How would we talk to? How would we serve? How would we pray for? If we thought of us being in Christ. When, when Alyssa stands here and gives her testimony of faith, a credible testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can not only respond saying amen, but we respond saying, praise be to God, our sister. Right? Who is Peter exhorting? He's exhorting beloved people who are beloved to him. Loved with love, and he loves them because they're in Christ. But not only is he addressing beloved, he's addressing those whom he calls sojourners. The first word here, sojourners. Now, we're probably not to, to consider, we don't need to think of these as two different words, sojourners and exiles. He just means them together. But think about the word sojourner. It speaks of someone who is a resident foreigner, one who is not currently residing in his real home. Dr. Zodiati said, a sojourner is one who dwells in a foreign country, a temporary dweller, not having a settled habitation in the place where he currently resides. It's likely that Peter is drawing from the words of Abraham in Genesis 23, 4, when Abraham said, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Peter is saying, comparing these, these scattered suffering saints in Asia Minor with Abraham, who was himself called out of Ur of the Chaldees by God. And that's how he's referring to these, these believers as sojourners, as, as those who, 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 don't, who are just temporary dwellers. They're, they're not yet at home. In fact, the next word is the word exiles. And again, Try not to think of them separately, but the word exile speaks of a person who is residing in a land. He's not not just passing through. He, He settled down for a while in a place he doesn't really belong. He's living among the natives in the land. He's living amongst people who are foreign to him. Now look, 
We're not talking about somebody's political status here. We're talking about someone's spiritual status. They are foreigners in this land, not because they're living amongst people with a different political culture, but because of their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Different languages, different values, different homelands, whatever it might be, they are different. That's how he's talking about those who've come to believe in Jesus Christ. You see who who he's exhorting. But then let's look at the second feature. What is he exhorting them to? What is he exhorting them to? What does he say? I urge you sojourners as, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. To abstain from the desires of the flesh. What are we talking about here? Let me define the terms first of all. You see the word abstain. You know that word, right? It, it means to hold off from. It was used in, in extra biblical language to speak of, of keeping a ship away from the shore. It's used as a reference to avoiding contact with something. Avoid contact with, and then in this case he says, the passions of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. Now what we're not talking about here, he's not referring to simply bodily desires, But the term flesh is really key in understanding what he's speaking of. The term flesh is referring to that which is driven by sin. I read this week, one commentator said something like this. It's referring to the tendency to satisfy bodily desires, and here's key, in a way that is contrary to God's revealed will. And I think that really gets at the heart of what he's being said here. He's saying, hold yourself back from satisfying bodily desires in a way that is contrary to the revealed will of God. He would tell us later in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, uh, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's getting the picture here. Hold yourself back from, be aware of your tendency to satisfy yourself with things that are contrary to God's revealed will. That's a definition, but I want to give you a a, a description really quickly because I think it's important. It's a way, when he talks about here the passions of the flesh, it's a way of thinking about how we used to live. Listen listen to this, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. What does that mean? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So passions of the flesh are sins of the flesh which involve not just physical actions, but really mental lust. One pastor said, they are strong cravings of the depraved flesh. What might he have in mind? Turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, and you'll get a picture here of the passions of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, you have this fuller picture of some of the things that Peter might have in mind here. This description, I'm calling it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's that same sort of picture, right? What are they? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit, the spirit of the Lord, are against the flesh. For those, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you were led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now here it is. The works of the flesh are evident. Here's what they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he just kind of lumps everything together, and things like these. He says, I've warned you about these things before. I told you before, if you do these things, if this is the habit of your life, if this is what characterizes your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is serious stuff. These are the passions of the flesh. And he's saying, I want you to hold back from the passions of the flesh. These are ways that you would sinfully gratify your bodily desires. That's what he's talking about. That's what Peter's describing. So he's exhorting them, abstain, step back from, hold off. I think it's interesting. Uh, Stephen Cole said this, please note that it is believers whom Peter exhorts to abstain from such fleshly desires. That's so key. He says, becoming a Christian does not eradicate the strong inner emotional tug towards self-will and sin. I remember, I've told you this before, I, I don't see him here today, but I was talking with Dale Sr., some years ago, we had been out on visitation. He's not here today, is he? Uh, okay, I'll talk about him. We, we, we were out on visitation together. We, were going, we, we sat down for lunch someplace. And uh, by that time, I don't know how old he is, you know, was, but, uh, you know, something older than me. And I said to him something like this, Dale, I can't wait till I get to your age so I don't have to fight sin so hard. And he said, let me tell you something, young man, you know? And I kind of shrunk down and tuck my tail between my legs. He said, it never gets easier. And I said, that is so discouraging. I don't even want to eat. Christ just being a Christian doesn't eradicate that strong inner emotional tug towards self and sin. Stephen Cole went on to say, walking with God for years does not eliminate the need to do battle with sin. He says, I used to find it odd that the godly George Mueller, as an old man who had walked with God for years, used to pray this, Lord, don't let me become a wicked old man. That's how he prayed. He said he knew the propensity of his heart toward sin. And so there's some reality here checking in with Peter as he gives us this exhortation, as he comes to these people and exhorts them, do not gratify the lusts of the flesh. 
Why? You see, who, what, but why? Why are they being exhorted this way? Look back again at 1 Peter chapter 2. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which... Now, now he's going to describe something. With this word, which, he's describing something about the passions of the flesh. Now notice, and this, this is, I think, the reason that he is giving this exhortation. Which wage war against your soul? It's not just, hey, things would be a lot better if you did. You'd have a better life if you didn't do this. This is something that wages war against your soul. He's giving us the reason here. There's something in the nature of fleshly lusts that should drive us back from gratifying or satisfying those cravings of our depravity. What is it? It is a war. A war on our souls. It's the way it's translated in the the ESV. But what I want you to understand here, the picture that he's giving us is that those fleshly passions, by their very nature, are actually soldiers. Think of it this way. Those fleshly passions are actually soldiers in a war against your soul. Peter's saying these things, he's not saying these things, rather, so that he can just get a whole bunch of people to follow him and dress like him and talk like him and sort of start this new religious cult. He's not saying these things for his health. He's saying these things, as James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 1, that these fleshly passions are soldiers in a war against our soul. They are at war in us. Which causes me to understand Not only is he telling us this because of the war on our souls, he's telling us this because of the wiles of Satan. Wiles, you know, the scheming of Satan. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 5 for a moment, verse 8. You know this, right? You know this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now listen, we have all been taught for years that spiritual warfare is largely something on the outside. We go around banishing demons and and binding Satan and that kind of nonsense. That is not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is inside. Paul would tell us that spiritual warfare is a matter of confronting anti-biblical ideologies anti-biblical philosophies, anti-biblical thoughts which exalt themselves against Christ, the lordship of Christ. And where do we confront those things? We confront those things primarily in the mind because the mind is the seedbed of action. So think about this. Satan is walking about like what? A roaring lion. Now listen. I was in Uganda some months ago and uh, had some time before my, my flight left. And so I went to a zoo and there they had these lions. And, and I won't go into the whole, the whole story. It's a funny and fascinating story, but the lions got really worked up. And I was standing right in front of them, watching them get worked up because of what some other animals were doing. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Until... That lion 
who's in captivity even, that lion roared. Like it sent a chill down my spine. It made my liver shiver. It was that, it was, it was like that. It puts fear in you. And he said this devil is walking about like this ferocious enemy seeking to devour, not to play, but seeking to devour. Now I want you to pay attention. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, Paul says this. Do not give place to the devil. Don't give an opportunity for the devil. That word there, to give place or to give opportunity, means to have an open door. Don't don't leave the door open for the devil. Why? Because we know that he's walking about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to destroy. If there's a little bit of of space, that that lion's going to get in there and destroy us. And what gives space to the devil? In that case, what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5 is our approach toward our sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the, the, the sun go down in your wrath. Don't lie to one another. He's talking about those kinds of sins. And the implication is that in those things, you give place to the devil. My point is this. I said earlier that fleshly passions are soldiers making war against your flesh. Think of them this way. We're earthly passions or bodily passions, fleshly passions, fleshly desires are like Satan's soldiers. Those things that he uses to wage war on your soul. And that's why Peter's saying, don't play nice with these things, Christians. Don't just play. This is serious stuff. This is roaring lion stuff. This is opening a door to a roaring lion who will devour and destroy you. That's why. That's why he's exhorting them. But the question is, how are they to obey? Maybe even more personally, how are we to obey this? How can we obey the, this, this exhortation, this urgent appeal to abstain from fleshly passions, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul? In verse 12, he says, keep or keeping, it's the participle here, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's describing here how it is that the readers would follow through with his exhortation. He gives this plan. The plan is not, hey, cover these things up, pretend like they don't exist. That's not the plan. It's not for some outward kind of show. The plan is, by keeping your conduct among the Gentiles, that's a way of saying your, your, your lifestyle in the world, keeping your lifestyle in the world honorable. That word honorable is, it could be translated maybe even better, beautiful, good, lovely is, is, is maybe a, the best way. Don't just dress up the outside. In 1 Peter 3.16, he talks about keeping a clear conscience, that which is on the inside. This is the plan. The way 
that you obey this command, this exhortation, is by maintaining a beautiful lifestyle among the Gentiles. Seek to have a lifestyle that is beautiful both between before God and man. Why? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose is so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The world will always speak against you as an evildoer. That's exactly what was happening in the Roman Empire at this time in the first century. Christians were absolutely hated in the first century. They were despised among people. Not only were they mocked and ridiculed, but they were slandered. Listen, in just about every way imaginable. I mean, persecution for Christians was enacted against those Christians in in an absolutely horrible way. They were being tortured because they were accused of insurrection against the Roman government primarily because they refused to worship the Roman emperor as deity. They were slandered and said to be cannibals probably because of the way they spoke of and thought about the Lord's Supper. It's said that they were guilty of incest because they referred to one another as what? Brother and sister. And all of this slander was, was, was hurled against them in so many different ways. And Peter says, now here's what I want you guys to do. Stand up for yourselves and fight back. Let's start a campaign to ridicule them when they ridicule you. Get the truth out. Isn't that what he says? I saw one person say no. No, that's not what he says. He says, I'll tell you what you do. Live an honorable, beautiful life. A good life. Speaking of what? Live with good deeds. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8.21, We aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Philippians chapter 2, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Titus 2.8, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Galatians 1.24, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Paul speaks of his testimony. He says, and they glorified God because of me. <laughs> they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. What is a day of visitation? Well, I'll just say simply that I think it's the day when God brings on them either his grace and salvation or his justice in judgment. Because we know that everyone will glorify God ultimately. And he says, I want you to live in such a way so that when God visits them and brings on them salvation, they'll glorify God. Or when God visits them and brings them judgment, they'll glorify God. I read this week about mission, missionary couple Herb and Ruth Klingen. Um, as the story goes, they spent a, a terrible time in an internment camp in the Second World War in the Philippines under Japanese tyranny. It says, uh, this, this article says they, they tell about the people that were murdered. They 
tell about their deprivation. They tell about the people who starved to death. They tell about the, the horrors of that camp. And in his diary, Herb wrote this. He described three years in that camp, and he, he keeps calling out this man named Konishi. And he says, Konishi was the fiercest. He was the most hated of the Japanese authorities. He said, this man was ruthless. He was brutal. He was murderous. He was a torturer who delighted to starve people to death. He shot people through the head. He did all kinds of unbelievable things. But he writes that Konishi, and this this is his diary. He said, Konishi found an an inventive way to abuse us. He says, he increased the food ration but gave us pele, which is unhusked rice. He says, eating the rice with its razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill us in hours. And we had no tools to remove the husks, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick consumed more calories than the rice would supply. He says it was a death sentence for all of us. And then Herb goes on to tell how that before that could be consumed because of their hunger. Uh, he said they were liberated by, by General Dark Douglas MacArthur on February 24th, 1945. Found out that it was on that very day that Konishi had planned to kill them all. And then Herb closes his testimony with this. He says, years after the war, we learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes and hanged. But before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity, saying that he could never escape the effect of the testimony of the Christian missionaries whom he had persecuted. So that when God visits them, they will glorify God because of your good deeds. They'll have no, they, they have nothing to say against you that will stick. The way that we follow through with this, with this exhortation. Well, remember this. Last week, we said that our purpose in this world is to be a billboard for publishing the excellencies or supremacy of our God in a world that's filled with lesser gods. The way that we follow through with this exhortation is by personally, intentionally keeping our billboard clean. So that God can publish something about himself in a world that is not only hostile toward him, but in a world that is filled with a bunch of lesser gods. You keep your billboard clean. Abstain from those fleshly passions. They're still there. You still deal with them. But praise God, when God saved us, we, we, we don't have to give in to those things. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through His Word, in and among the church as we serve one another and love one another and stir one another up to love and good works. We don't have to give in to those things. Praise the Lord. Those fleshly passions you can abstain from as you decide and determine to live an honorable life. One that is beautiful. Not not legalism, but we're talking about a life that is aimed at the glory of God. Why do you live the way you live? I live the way that I live 
because I know and love my God. I know and serve my God. Ask yourself the question, what is my life saying about the excellencies of God? What is my life saying today? What am I communicating with my life about the supremacy of God in a world that is filled with lesser gods? How do we we publish His excellencies? Keep your billboard clean. Hold back from fleshly desires. Don't give in to those things. They, They just wage war on your soul. They're like Satan's soldiers just appointed to bring destruction and to to devour you. Turn from them. Fill your life with that which is good. Fill your life with with that which is godly. Pursue His glory. And praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, when you realize that your billboard is smudged up, listen, confess your sins. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord that we have a gracious, patient king who will even, through our sin, tell us something about his excellency that he would take us and clean us up and make us shine for the glory of his name. That's what we're called to. We speak of the excellencies of God through our sanctification, our individual and corporate pursuit of holiness. And may we do that together until the day that Christ comes again. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you today In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking you for your word, thanking you for teaching us. And we pray, O Father, that we would follow through with the words of this exhortation. That we would take our pursuit of holiness seriously. To live righteous, upright, beautiful lives in the presence of God and men, not for our glory, but for yours. May you draw attention to yourself through us. As the world seems to be in a decline of darkness and and the despair of depravity more and more, may you publish abroad the, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous, his wonderful, his exceedingly good light. Make for yourself a testimony among us. A testimony for Christ. In this world. So that you may indeed draw everyone. To yourself. Bringing glory to your name. Glory to your name whether you save. Or whether you judge. And we'll give you praise. In Jesus name and together all God's people said. Amen. As we